And if you're here and you don't have a Bible today, uh, there should be one in the pew in front of you that you can use. Jake and worship team, thank you so much for leading us. Uh, I, love, <coughs> I love Sundays that we get to start off with baptism because it is a public display of what we're here to talk about this morning and celebrate, which is the gospel, redemption, our Jesus calling us out of darkness and into marvelous light, redeeming us by his blood. That is such good news. Um, and it's easy, let me just say this, going off script here, um, but it's easy to be in a passage like we've been in the last three weeks of Romans and forget about that good news. Because as we look into the depth of humanity's sin, we can often uh, be so concentrated and focused there that we forget our God is magnificent and wonderful. And that's not our aim, but our aim is to preach what God's Word says. And places God's Word goes, we have to go. We have to dig. If we don't, we will not truly know ourselves, but worse, we won't truly know our God. So we want to know Him. So uh, Carlton, for the last three weeks, has dug deep into humanity's need for the gospel, as Paul lays it out in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul says these things. He says, humanity has suppressed the truth. Verse 18. Verse 21, he says, they don't acknowledge God. Verse 23, he says, they've exchanged his glory for things he's created. And then in verse 32, he says, they not only practice sinning while knowing God's just penalty, but they give hearty approval to others' sin. And as Carlton rightly mentioned, this is one of the darkest pictures of humanity in all of Scripture. And if you're human, then you understand that Paul is speaking about you. But I fear that many of us, including myself, subconsciously take they to mean someone other than me. Because many of us have never reached the depths of sinfulness talked about in the previous passage. So what we do is this maneuvering in our minds, right? Where we remove and excuse ourselves from that section. And we do this sometimes while not even realizing it. That's why I said it's subconscious. Take, for example, the fact that we all have biases. We all have biases. Just to pause for a minute. Am I echoing? You, no, not to y'all? feel like I'm echoing. Maybe it's just me. Robert, amen? Okay, thank you. Um, take, for example, the fact that we all have biases, okay? Many of these biases can be clearly recognized because they are explicit biases. This is why referees in sports wear black and white stripes. They're trying to explicitly state, I am not for the white team, I am not for the black team. I am neutral. They call a fair game, or at least they try. But when you stand up and yell at them for a call that you perceive to be wrong, all while wearing your team's apparel, you show your explicit bias, right? 
I mean, when's the last time you got really angry and started ranting and raving at a referee for a call that went for your team? Doesn't happen, right? We just sit back and smile. So that is an obvious and explicit bias. But everyone also has many implicit biases. Now, implicit biases are those things that are not so obvious, but still have a massive impact on the way you think about things and the way you make decisions and even judgments. These aren't things you would find yourself even voicing an opinion about because then they would be explicit biases. Now, any example I could give you of an implicit bias would be extremely controversial. Thought through this, okay? Because many implicit biases come from the way we're raised or things we've been through. In fact, they may not even be things we vocally agree with. It's like claiming not to be prejudiced about said issue, but then realizing you tend to always judge things a certain way that clearly show a bias. Implicit biases are deep-rooted in our worldview. And as you've heard before, your worldview is kind of like your skeleton. You can't examine it, but it holds together your whole person, right? So it is with implicit biases. Another way you can think about implicit biases could be thought of as glorified preferences. Preferences are natural and good. It's great that we all don't like vanilla ice cream because then there would be no need for chocolate. What a travesty, right? But when your preference for vanilla ice cream is glorified and becomes an implicit bias, you will tend to judge those poor souls who would stand in line, be offered vanilla ice cream in all of its glory, and then choose chocolate. What fools. Now I know this is a silly example, but the point I'm trying to make is this. We subconsciously, because it's natural, tend to think of ourselves in ways that make us superior because of our implicit biases. You with me? In fact, now I'm going to get a little personal. Some of you will sit here today and instead of humbly placing yourself under God's word for reproof and correction, you will sit in the seat of judgment as you listen. And you as the judge will rightly decide whether what I'm saying is true or not. What you like and agree with, you will keep. But what you disagree with or where God's word confronts you in a word that might be uncomfortable, you will chalk it up as an overstatement or misrepresentation of the text or application. Yet you will not come and talk to me after service about it because the truth in your mind is the gavel has already dropped. For you are the judge and the jury. You don't need to go wrestle with a pastor about an indictment that God's word has brought against you. 
No. You as the judge have already dismissed the case altogether. And you've done this without even thinking about it because the truth is you've done this your whole life without even thinking about it. It comes naturally for you. At this point, some of you probably think that I'm being a tad bit offensive this morning and harsh. But that is exactly what these Christians reading Paul's letter would have thought when they got to Romans 2 verse 1. This part of Paul's letter is extremely offensive. Extremely offensive. After Paul delivers the doctrine of sin and debasement or reprobation, he now pivots on a dime and as if he's jumping off the stage and into the audience pointing his finger, he says this, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Can I pray for us? Father, as we approach your word this morning, God, we know that we don't approach it neutrally. We approach it as broken individuals with all kinds of out of order biases. But God, we're asking for a work of your Holy Spirit this morning that you will take your word and you will make it clear to our busted up hearts. Would you please, God, help us to see clearly what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As Paul went from opening his letter by declaring the gospel to then talking about the righteousness of God being revealed through wrath against all ungodliness, he knew that there were those reading his letter that would feel a sense of pride and satisfaction that Paul was preaching the truth, right? And the words of Jonathan Edwards, God is angry with sinners. And Paul dug that well deep, didn't he? But it's then that Paul turns to the choir and he says, But you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. Now, why is it that these people who hold a high view of morality and seem to stand against evil, why is it that they are without excuse? Is it because they are judging others? 
Is that the reason? I mean, it seems to be the case at first glance. And it sits well with our current culture, doesn't it? I mean, it's, since 1996, when Tupac released his hit song, Only God Can Judge Me, that's been the ideology, right? I mean, you laughing because you didn't know that was a song, maybe, but you've seen it tattooed on people's skin. Or you've seen it posted on social media. Only God can judge me. Judging others has become a high sin in our culture. Probably one of the greatest sins in our culture. To judge someone else is being seen as narrow-minded, uneducated, or uninformed. It's bigotry. So is this what Paul is getting at when he says, you are without excuse, every one of you who judges? No. No, Paul is not rebuking their judgment here. We do know this is the case elsewhere in Scripture. In John 7, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he tells those listening, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here, Jesus corrects wrong judgment. But that's not what Paul's doing in our passage. Look at the next sentence. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice what? The very same things. That's an excellent translation. The very same things. So Paul's not rebuking their judgment. Paul is rebuking them. The people who he's writing this letter to. Them, those who think they, in Romans 1, is someone else. I told you, this is offensive. Christians reading this letter are now scratching their heads. I thought Paul was talking about pagans in Romans 1. What does he mean? We practice the very same things. We'll look back at verse 29 in chapter 1 so that you don't miss the list. We want to make sure we know exactly what Paul's indictment is here. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Whoa. Now, Paul isn't doing anything new here with this indictment. Paul, in being a follower of Jesus, would have definitely heard of and probably knew by heart Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, Jesus preached like this. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See what he did there? 
he drew back on God's law that says thou shalt not murder, but then he indicted everyone that could hear his voice by saying, but I say to you. Now Jesus isn't giving new law here. Rather, he is expounding God's law so that those listening cannot excuse themselves. Because this is the natural move of man. We try to excuse ourselves from the weight of God's law by ignoring it or minimizing it so that it doesn't convict or condemn us. But here, in Paul, in, here Paul in Romans 2 doesn't let us do that. He draws back again to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus advised people not to judge lest they be judged. Listen to Jesus' words again. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, if we're honest, this part of Jesus' sermon is difficult to us. Because when was the last time you thought you were judging for someone, someone having a speck in their eye, meanwhile you knew you had a log in your own eye? Answer, probably never happened. No one thinks that. And that's the point. Self-righteous people are blind to their own sin. I don't want you to miss that. Self-righteous people are blind to their own sin. This is why Paul is coming off so strong with his use of what's called a diatribe in this section of the letter. A diatribe is defined as a forceful and bitter verbal attack against someone or something. In ancient culture, it was employed by philosophers as they would set up an imaginary opponent and then obliterate possible objections with, to their arguments. And that is what Paul is doing here. All commentators agree. Make no mistakes about it. Paul personally knows the stronghold and hardness of heart that comes with a self-righteous person. For he was one. And he knows that for that person to come to repentance, they will need a miracle from heaven that literally knocks them off their high horse, shows them their blindness, and then gives them new sight. John MacArthur rightly notes that Self-righteousness, as understood in the scriptures, makes two deadly errors. The first is minimizing God's moral standards, usually by emphasizing externals. That's a tricky move if you think about it. Minimizing God's moral standard by emphasizing externals. It's a real tricky move. But secondly... 
Self-righteous people make the error of underestimating the depth of their own sinfulness. And this is very true. But Paul goes on here to give two mistakes that he thinks self-righteous people make in verses 3 and 4. But before he begins in verse 3, he makes a statement that most would have believed would have been a common statement that everyone knew at the time. He says this, look, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. You see how he's bringing you in? We know this. We know that God's righteous judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now in verse 3, he employs a key tactic of the diatribe. Indict with a question. Look what he says. Do you suppose then, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What Paul is putting forth here is that there is a solid belief, a firm belief in the self-righteous person that they really are on the right team. They really are. They really are seeking to do what's best. They really are working with God. They believe the truth and are living best they can according to it. And this firm belief that they are righteous allows them to overlook their sin. It gives them the freedom from deep examination of their hearts. It causes them to think that they will escape God's judgment because they've done the steps. They've followed the rules. They've checked the boxes. But most of all, they've looked around and they've taken note of others' morality and they've made sure that they don't fall below a certain line. And this gives them security. This causes them to think or suppose that they will escape the judgment of God. I'm not a homosexual. I've not gotten to bed with anyone that's not my spouse. I've not murdered anyone. I've not stolen. I've worked hard. I've kept my hands to myself. I've paid my taxes. It's, I've done what's required of me. You can feel the heat and anger of the self-righteous, right? As they're indicted here. It's this kind of preaching that Paul did that attacked the hidden idols of the heart that got Paul run out of so many towns. And it's also this type of preaching that got Jesus put on the cross. In verse 4, Paul puts forth another possible error of the self-righteous person. He says, or do you presume... This word literally means to hold in contempt. Do you hold in contempt the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to what? Lead you to repentance. You see, the self-righteous person with their external morality enjoys many of the fruits that come from being a good person. They do. These are known as the common graces of God. 
It's by God's kindness that we're able to get married. It's by God's kindness that we're able to have children, work jobs, hang with friends, enjoy nature. And all of these things should leave us breathless at the grace of our God. Watching your children play or enjoying the gift of friendship could, should. It should cause you to beat your chest and say, oh God, oh God, how good you are to a sinner like me. That I may enjoy your good gifts even though I deserve mistreatment and condemnation. You give me kindness. Oh God, would you search me? Oh God, would you know my heart? Try me and know my thoughts, God, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Please, Lord, would you lead me to the way everlasting? This is the right response to God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience. But the self-righteous person doesn't respond that way. They look at all they have and see it as merely the fruit of their labor, their sacrifice, their good decisions, their righteousness. They are dumb to the idea that Paul puts forth in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, when he says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. It's God who causes the growth. But the self-righteous person presumes his kindness from God is deserved. You probably heard someone say before, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. But the self-righteous person has done this with God. So Paul says self-righteous people do two things. They suppose that they will escape God's judgment... And secondly, they presume on his kindness, his character. It's important that I tell you that if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I'm not self-righteous, that's probably a dead giveaway. The self-righteous person is always dodging and defending themselves against indictments. Always. But I want to share with you an example of how a Christian should respond when they've been accused of wrong or sin. What I'm about to read to you is a response email from Aaron Acker to myself. I emailed Aaron because I felt hurt by something he had sent in a previous email. And I let it be known, very bluntly, of this hurt. And this is how your pastor responded. My apologies for offending you. I am very sorry. I surely did not mean to. I will fight to be better at being loving and loving you. As best I know, my motives there were right. But regardless, please forgive me and help me to know how to do this better. That's how a person responds when they're not trying to be righteous in their own eyes. 
I've said before that we are blessed with a church where the leadership doesn't put on as those who have conquered sin and now stand on an island while all you poor and pitiful people wonder how one crosses such great a chasm. No, the leaders at Grace Fellowship are honest about their sin. In other words, you've got a bunch of messed up pastors. And because we also have a tendency to be self-righteous, we could tell you exactly how the others fall short. Because we know. But one thing we will not do is stand in judgment as if we are without sin. Your pastors know sin. We, just like you, are encased in flesh that has all kinds of disordered desires that at their root are no different from yours. And when we do sin, we need to be confronted about it. And it's then, I pray, as leaders, but also you as Grace Fellowship members, will respond with repentance from soft hearts. Here's the last thing Paul says about the self-righteous in verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In the last chapter, we saw God's wrath revealed, present tense, against all ungodliness. We saw that some of that present tense wrath is inherent in wickedness, meaning you reap what you sow. But now what Paul says in verse 5 is for those who pretend to be morally superior and presently reap the benefits of their morality, they are actually storing up wrath on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's an analogy that I hope brings the point home. Jordan Belfort was a brilliant young man who knew he had what it took to become rich as an investor. He founded a financial firm called Oakman Stratton Oakmont. The business did incredibly well. Jordan and the 1,000 people he employed became mega rich. He enjoyed the life of a millionaire at age 26. Wow. However, Jordan would become a convict by the age 36. The reason? Fraud. And pump and dump schemes that left his customers losing hundreds of millions. You see, for those 10 years, everyone thought Jordan was brilliant and magnificent. They all wanted to work for him. But when the truth surfaced, he was rightly seen as the criminal he truly was. And all of that illegal investing he had done paid dividends in the years he spent in prison. Church, the self-righteous person will probably fly high in this life and do well and be esteemed. But what Paul says they are investing in is wrath to come. They're just putting it off 
to save face at this moment. But the moment is coming, according to the scriptures, where they will be embarrassed and shamed beyond belief as they suffer God's righteous wrath. It's heavy. And the last thing I want to do today is leave any of you confused. I do believe the Holy Spirit is at work through his word as he always is when we preach his word. Applying to you specifically the truth that you need to hear. However, I also know from Paul that the self-righteous person's heart is hard and impenitent. That's why he comes at it with such force. So I want to be super clear as I wrap things up this morning on how you might know if you're self-righteous. Here's the first part. The first part is understanding and accepting that your sinful nature inclines you toward self-righteousness. So that's first. Understanding and accepting that you have a natural inclination toward focusing on externals, minimizing God's law, and minimizing your sin. You gotta accept that. Secondly, here's three questions, and I'm sure there are many more, that you can ask yourself as you try to discern. Number one, the scriptures speak about confessing your sin one to another. Do you regularly confess specific sin that you commit to others? If the answer is no, then you might be self-righteous, thinking that you don't have specific sin, or you don't need to confess it. Number two, are you easily angered by others? This could be because you think others are stupid and you are smart. Others are sinful and you're a saint. Others are lazy and you are hardworking. Others lack commitment and you're committed. See the trend? Number three, are you quicker to give encouragement or critique? It is a massive problem if you have a great eye for others' flaws and failures, but have a tendency to overlook and undervalue positive aspects. It's a massive problem. But what's the cure? What should one do today if they've been convicted, as I have this week? that they are self-righteous. Well, in John 3, we have Jesus' meeting with a self-righteous man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has been cut to the heart by Jesus' teaching, so he came asking Jesus questions about the kingdom of God. And rather than answer his questions, Jesus changed the conversation by telling Nicodemus that he cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Astounded and in typical form of a self-righteous person, Nicodemus asked what? How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born for a second time? And this is what Jesus tells Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from nor where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Here's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Stop making human judgments about who's righteous and who's not. There are two classes of people. Those who have been born again by God's Spirit and those who have been born of the flesh only. But knowing what Nicodemus would try and find out what he needed to do to be born again, Jesus says this, your control over being born again is the very same control you have over the wind. You don't have control over the wind. You see, Jesus offers us salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. Receiving his grace means believing him as savior. Meaning your hope for justification before a holy God is in his righteousness, not your own. But also believing in him as Lord. Meaning this, you do whatever he tells you to do. At the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this is what he asked those listening. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The self-righteous call Jesus Lord, but don't do what he tells them. In fact, they often twist his own words in order to avoid doing what he tells them. That's heinous. But there is good news this morning. And here is it, here it is. Our God is kind even to the self-righteous person. He is patient and long-suffering with our hard and impenitent hearts. Even as the perfect Son of God hung on a cross he cries out, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. He knows that the self-righteous are just as blind as the licentious. So you know what he did? He stepped out of heaven and came to earth as the only true self-righteous person. 
But he didn't hang this over our head by looking down his nose at us. No, he broke bread with the immoral person and prideful religious people because he loved them all. He desires for all to repent and receive his grace. Get this. He was willing to suffer scorn and shame, things that you and I constantly veer away from. He was willing to suffer public scorn and shame things for, for things he absolutely did not deserve in order that you may receive his righteousness. He was willing to take on your unrighteousness and be judged before his Father on your behalf. Receiving God's righteous wrath, which is the just penalty for your sin, for my sin. He received this. And then our God descended to hell. But he didn't descend to hell to suffer anymore. For on the cross he cried out, it is finished. He drank up every last drop of God's wrath for our sin. No, he descended to hell to victoriously pronounce that he is king. And no longer does death and the grave have any power over those who are his. Then he rose and he preached the same good news to all those who watched him die. They were in shock. But upon hearing this amazing grace, all their fears were relieved. And then as he ascended into heaven, promising that he will come again. And when he comes, he will make all things new. All things. So today, I'm calling you by faith, to turn from your self-righteousness and turn to the righteousness of Jesus. Do this by living in the light, confessing your sin, denying the urge to make excuses for yourself, and then you will find life forevermore. But I want to be real with you. I want to warn you that your spiritual life, if you do this, is probably going to be messy and not that impressive to others, nor yourself. But you know what? That won't matter to you. Because as we'll see Paul say next week, your aim is not to please man, but God. <laughs> so much freedom here. The God who knows your every sin still welcomes you to approach his throne today and find forgiveness. What grace. Christians, the more we try to put on, the worse we make our awesome God look. But when we're genuine about how messed up our hearts are, God will glorify himself through our brokenness. He will. I'm going to pray that you and I would believe this good news today.
Father. It's rare that I approach your word and am not surprised at what I find. I don't know if that ever happens. And Father, it hasn't happened with this text. And um, God, these words are tough. But these words are true. Father, as much as we don't want to take ownership that this is us today, Father, would you humble us? Would you remove from our minds the fear of man, the worry about what others will think if my sin is found out, people know what's truly in my heart? God, would you get rid of all of that in us today? And would you highlight, oh God, your magnificent saving grace and forgiveness through the church of Grace Fellowship. That people wouldn't look at us and go, wow, what magnificent people. But people would look at us and go, what a magnificent God. Lord, we're asking you to do this. Because only you can. In Jesus' name.